0: As we turn to Matthew chapter 7 again, at the very end of this series, we begin to take stock in what we've learned and where we've been. Jesus has shown us that he, in fact, is the master teacher and one who knows how to get to the very heart of the matter. And he has shown us that he's never afraid to deal with the difficult subjects, to deal with the controversial themes, but that he does them and he shows us that he can do so speaking absolute truth balanced with absolute grace and like every good teacher jesus recognizes that as he comes to an end of teaching a group of people that there is a great importance to finishing strong any preaching class will tell you that your conclusion is one of the most important things that you uh, can have in a speech or in a sermon that is given and jesus shows us how a master does it well jesus finishes using a story that's easy enough for a child to remember and understand, and he uses that story to hammer home the importance of putting into practice everything that you and I have learned in these last 30 or so weeks. So with that, let us stand for the reading of God's Word, and let's look at this text and look at this story that he gives and glean some truths from it. Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 29, page eight hundred. And uh, 12 in your Pew Bible, if you want to follow along. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall. And then uh, it says, And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, the crowd, crowds were astonished at his teaching for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Let's go to the Lord in prayer once again. Father God, we come before you. And we thank you for your word, for the opportunity to read it in public, for the opportunity to hear it read, for it to sink into our hearts and minds. Now, Lord, as we open your word and study from it, Lord, I pray that you would uh, allow us to grab the truths, Lord, some as simple uh, for a child to understand and others, Lord, uh, that will take uh, some real examination on our part, to look at the very essence of our lives and and what we are living this life for. And so, Lord, I pray you would speak through me and that your people would be blessed as a result of this time together. In Christ's name we pray. Amen and amen. You may be seated. Well, our calendars tell us it's the middle of May. Weather has shown us that it feels more like February. In fact, just a couple days ago, it felt like it was January with the snow flying in the air. And yet, while our calendars seem to tell us one thing and the weather tells us another, we are reminded by our teachers and the schools that our our students attend that it is, in fact, the middle of May because it's time for finals, right? Those dreaded moments, those dreaded days... Where as a student, all that you've learned since January is now going to be put on one test. It's going to comprise one project, and that is going to involve the vast majority of your grade. And some people with great dread find themselves looking and studying and exerting all kinds of energy and time and attention on the truths that they've learned throughout their semester in that particular class. And we have upon us, and many of you I know, I've seen on Facebook, have one opportunity to determine whether you're going to pass the class or fail it. And so comes a lot of stress and anxiety as a result of this. Well, as we come to the last part of the Sermon on the Mount, I want you to see this last passage before us like Jesus' final examination. This is where Jesus asks the question, and it's the question that every professor and every teacher asks around this time of the year. Students, have you been listening? Have you been hearing the things that I've been teaching? Well, as important as algebra and as important as English and and the social sciences are, what Jesus has been teaching us is of greater importance than even those important things. And what Jesus wants to know, not only of the crowd that he's been teaching in that original audience in Matthew chapter 7, but for us today is, have you been listening? Have you been hearing the words that have been coming out of the mouth of Jesus? Have you taken them to heart? Have you asked yourself some of the take-home assignments, if you will, that when Jesus has uttered something, that he means for us to look at them and to explore whether or not if we have passed the test. Now, as we come to the close of this sermon, for many of you, as I've heard uh, from you, many of you have said, hey, I'm not sure I'm passing the class right now. And I'm so thankful that though we fail and though we miss our assignments and though we uh, many times get an incomplete or even an F at times in the Christian life, that is where Jesus' grace and his mercy come through in our hour of need. And so for many of us, as we have struggled, Jesus is now going to bring us to the final examination. After all these weeks together, Jesus places before us a test that hopefully we've been studying for. And I want you to know this test has three questions this morning. Not a very difficult one, right? Three, three questions, but in them will examine and will tell all of the world whether or not We have passed the test of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And so, the three vital questions I want to look at this morning involve, first of all, asking the question, Who are you listening to? Who are you listening to? If you want to follow along, there's a sermon insert sheet in your bulletin. And and write in and, and follow along as we go through this. Jesus, at the end of his sermon, asks us the question, Have you been listening? And even more than that, are you listening to Jesus or are you listening to someone else? As we talked about early in, earlier in this series, we have no idea if the Sermon on the Mount was a series of sermons preached over a period of time or one very long and drawn-out sermon. I like the idea that this would have been one drawn-out sermon. Homiletic uh, professors and scholars say that this sermon would have been into the hours if it was done in one fell swoop. I, I like that. That tells me that I'm doing a good thing and that you guys are, are, are getting away easy by listening to what are quote-unquote Tim's long sermons, okay? But we don't know. We don't, Matthew doesn't tell us whether or not this is a series of sermons or, or one. It seems to point that this is one long sermon, and we know that Jesus preached some long sermons. Remember, Jesus was preaching so long that people had gotten so very hungry, and so if they had gotten hungry from when they started, you got to imagine that it had to have been hours of him speaking on one occasion by itself. And so we're not sure. But notice beyond that, that scholars believe that we don't have all that Jesus spoke, whether it was done on one occasion or on multiple occasions. We've got, if you will, the cliff notes. Now, we know that just because we may have the cliff notes of it, the Bible makes it clear that the things that have been written in God's Word are there so that we might believe and and have faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And so we know we've got all that we need, but we also recognize that Matthew probably isn't giving us everything. And yet I want you to remember that it has taken us more than 30 hours to examine this sermon as a church, now add to that the small group discussion. Let's add another 30 hours of discussion there. And then let's say, I'm just going to assume, you all take an hour to work on your small group material. That's another hour. 90 hours surrounding this subject matter. And can I tell you, we haven't even scratched the surface. What Jesus shares and what Jesus articulates is so much more than what we've been able to go through. And that's what I love about the Scriptures, that though we spend a lot of time, I mean, 30 weeks on three chapters of the Scripture, going a couple verses at a time, and we still haven't depth the, uh, plumbed the depths, if you will, of the great teachings that have been before us. Now, with all that said as an example for us, we understand that Jesus was teaching at a time and in a place where he wasn't the only one speaking. Jesus had, if you will, competition. There were a lot of voices in Jesus' day that were proclaiming the way to live. Now, let us remember that some of Jesus' greatest enemies were the chief priests and the Pharisees. These were a group of people who were preaching their brand of law and works-based salvation, saying, if you just follow our laws and our rules and our regulations to the T, then you can have eternal life with God. And they had drawn a great many people who had put on the duty hat, who had put on the drudgery hat of of following the rules. And they were those who were teaching. We know that during that time of Jesus, the Greek philosophers were at the height of their popularity. And they were proclaiming the idea of knowledge and wisdom and enlightenment being the highest form of human existence. And so there were many scholars of Jesus' day who were proclaiming something very different than what Jesus was and uh, garnering a group of followers for themselves. There was still another group of people that were listening uh, to not only Jesus' message but also to their own uh, leaders, and that was those who were political zealots. These were individuals who were more focused in on reformation of a government system and throwing off the tyranny of Rome instead of asking the question of what it takes for the regeneration of the hearts. And so Jesus, just as he did in his day, Jesus this morning in the year 2014 isn't the only one speaking. I mean, my goodness, we are receiving messages from all sorts of people. Turn on the TV and myriads of messages are coming our way. People that have a new idea with this and a new direction for that. And Jesus, amongst the many, are proclaiming what is seemingly the answer to the blessed life. Now, the question is, is are we listening? Are we listening? Are we, because we are being bombarded by all those messages, missing out on Jesus' voice amidst the many people that are speaking? Now, as we examine this Sermon on the Mount, and we put our attention, and I'm thankful that we have dedicated our time to this, But as we examine it, we learn something about Jesus that's very important. Because when we start listening to Jesus, when we push away all the other voices in our day, we will see something about Jesus. And that is, number one, Jesus is to be our authority. Jesus is to be our authority. Notice in the text, at the very end of the sermon, it says in verse 28, "...and when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowd was astonished at his teaching." For he was teaching as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Now, after Jesus gets his sermon done, the polling begins to take place. The exit polls, as, as people are walking away from the Sermon on the Mount, begin to take place. What did you think of it? Now, I know that some of that's happening even in the foyer with yours truly. That as we leave, some will say, man, Tim really brought it this morning. Man, he really, man, he... He got up on the right side of the bed, and other ones are like, man, I don't know why he was so chipper this morning. His sermon really left a lot to be desired. And I get that, and I recognize that, but here's what we learn of the the polling of Jesus. They are absolutely astonished. After listening to Jesus share these words, the only word that comes to their mind is the word astonished. That word in the original Greek language is the word ekplaso. Ekplaso means to strike out, to expel by a blow, to drive out or away, or to force or cast off with a blow. Now, that's an odd way to explain the idea of being astonished. And so we need to understand well, how was this word used? And figuratively in the Greek language, this word meant to drive out one's senses by a sudden shock or strong feeling. Literally, Eplasso meant to be exceedingly struck in the mind. What this means is that the people, after they had heard these words from Jesus, was that they were filled with amazement to the point of being overwhelmed. The idea here is wonder, astonishment, amazement, stunned amazement that leaves the subject unable to grasp what is happening. So they were overwhelmed. They were beside themselves. They were totally dumbfounded by the words of Jesus. Now what what caused them to be that way? What caused their astonishment? The scripture says that he taught with authority. And then he gives, Matthew does, a contrast. He spoke with authority unlike the scribes and the Pharisees. Now why would Matthew say that? Because the the, the way that people were taught back in the days of Jesus, the rabbis and the chief priests and Pharisees were walking and talking bibliography pages. What that meant is that they never spoke with their own authority. They always spoke speaking someone else's words. What that meant was they were always quoting someone else, citing somebody else, and they never themselves took a step out and said, this is what I believe, this is what I think that, we should do. And the people had come to know that their religious leaders were simply parrots spouting off stuff they had heard someone else say. And this wasn't always the case. For 400 years, uh, the people had heard someone else's voice speaking to them. But before that, they had the prophets, men, And even women that thundered down the voice of God saying, thus saith the Lord, we need to do this. We need to go there. We need to to, uh, advance against this country. We need to bow in obedience to to this law that God has given us. And gone were those days. And only in now short order had someone risen up to do that. We know that Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, for a short season before the coming of Christ in his first coming, had announced repent for the kingdom of God of heaven is near. And people were flocking to this, these two men, Jesus and John the Baptist, these men who spoke with a level of authority. And notice in the Sermon on the Mount at the end of Matthew chapter 5, Jesus doesn't cite other people. In fact, six times he says, I know you've heard it said dot, 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 but I tell you. You're going to get it with Jesus from the horse's mouth, if you will. You're going to hear what Jesus has to say. And he was speaking from authority, and he was calling people. In fact, he was commanding people to live in a very different way than they had before. And it was ringing true in the ears of those in the crowd. Now, before you think that Jesus was simply just a charismatic speaker who wowed the people with his eloquence and flowing rhetoric, we need to see that Jesus also had all the answers. He was the authority who had all the answers. Notice in verse 29 that the reason why they're amazed is because of his authority, which was seen in his teaching. Twice, Matthew tells us that his teaching was awe-inspiring, his body of information that he was going to share. I like what A.T. Pearson says. He observed that Christ taught the Scriptures uh, to people as if he was the author rather than its commentator. I like what he said here. Notice on the screen it said that Jesus comes forth. Jesus comes forth from a carpenter shop where, like all other well trained Hebrew youth, he learned his father's trade. And his first public utterance is the most original and revolutionary address on practical morals. Which the world has ever heard. Now, let me say that again. Jesus comes forth from a carpenter's shop, where, like all other trained Hebrew youth, he learned his father's trade. He was a carpenter. And in his first public address, he utters the most original and revolutionary address on practical morals that the world has ever heard. What Jesus shares is absolutely, positively revolutionary. It's life-changing, it's world-changing, and, and people both in the secular and in the sacred realms find themselves over and over again pouring over these words of Jesus. Now, Jesus, we see, he had all the answers, and he was not afraid to speak about any particular subject matter. Everything that he said seemingly was controversial to one listener in the crowd. In fact, many in the crowd were there to dispute what Jesus was saying, and he knew his words would cause rifts. He knew his words would cause him trouble. He knew that the very words he would use at some later point would be used against him when people falsely accused him. And so notice, when Jesus shared the Sermon on the Mount, he spoke about sin He spoke about sinful acts that we commit in the flesh, but he also addressed right when you thought you were okay, that you have never committed adultery in the flesh, I've never killed in the flesh. Jesus turns it on its head and says, but have you done it in your heart? Well, if you've done it in your heart, then you've done it just as you've done it in the flesh. He addresses things like lust and, and greed, the issue of divorce and selfish ambition, the pursuit of money and riches. He addresses things like the judgment and, and hell, he addresses that all the while as he addresses each of these things, the head, the heart, the hands, all of them, he says that if you want to be a part of my kingdom, you're going to have to be absolutely perfect. And the people can't get enough of this. The sermon makes clear what many of us know about Jesus. He has the answers. And so as we look to our lives, we have a question that has to be asked. Who are you listening to? Are you listening to the pundits on, uh, on the radio or television who have all the right answers? And if we just get this or we just do that, then our lives will be so much better. Are you reading books and, and magazines that say, if you fix this part of your body, then you'll be happy. If you only have this amount of money and, and you work really hard, then with that certain dollar amount, everything will be just fine. If you could just find that perfect mate, then everything would be taken care of. What Jesus addresses is he says, stop listening to the voices of the world and start listening to me. Start listening to me because I am the authority. Jesus says, I have all the answers. The Apostle Peter, an original audience member in that Sermon on the Mount, says that Jesus has given us everything we need for life and godliness. We've got it all, and we have it in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, if that's the case... If Jesus is truly the authority and Jesus has all the answers, then what that means is our hearing has to lead to action. It has to lead to action. Notice in verse 24 now everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man. Notice in verse uh, 26. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man. And again, there's a contrast. You listen and you do what I'm telling you to do, and you do those things, you put those things into practice, you're wise. You listen, and you don't put these things into practice, you're a fool. Uh, Can I tell you that each of my children have a problem that Amanda and I struggle to figure out? We thought it was a hearing problem. So we went to the ear doctor, and we said, something's wrong. There's got to be wax in there. There's some sort of buildup. Maybe their eardrum has been damaged. I mean, something's wrong with our children. They can't hear. And then the doctor goes through, and and he finds out, no, everything's fine. They can hear absolutely normally. They're, They're good to go. And what we learned was they didn't have a hearing problem, but a doing problem. You see, my wife will say, come here, and they don't come. And she says, come here, come here, come here, come here. And, and, and my wife sounds like a broken record. I want to go over and just kind of nudge her so that she, the skipping will stop. And the problem is is she keeps saying to come here, and the kids don't do that. And as a result of that, we don't have a hearing problem. They hear the words that are coming out of our mouths, okay? Don't waste your your, your copay on a hearing doctor, Okay, What it is, is they don't want to listen. Listening is more than hearing audible voices and audible noises through these canals that we call our ears. Listening is putting those things that we hear into practice. So when mom or dad says, come here, your brain says, okay, I acknowledge that. My legs start moving, and I move to where that voice is. And I do exactly what that voice says. And and Jesus says that we have a problem not with our hearing but with our listening. Now, why is that? Well, in our day and age, what people will say right away when it comes to the Sermon on the Mount is that I'm all good with the Sermon on the Mount as long as I get to pick and choose what parts I have to do. And so what people will do, and you will hear it over and over again, that people love the Sermon on the Mount. They love this Jesus who preaches the Beatitudes to be poor in spirit, to be merciful, uh, to be kind, and and to be those who are peacemakers and pure at heart. And they'll preach that again and again and again. And then they'll go and they'll say that uh, we are not to judge and we are not to um, retaliate. And, And they'll say, we love this Jesus, this wonderful, meek, and mild, and, and, and tempered Jesus, this Jesus who makes us feel good. And what they do is they take the parts of the Sermon on the Mount that they don't want to be a part of, and they choose to take this sermon a la carte. i love a little of this and a little of that. Oh, you know, hold back on the hard words of Jesus. I'm reading right now a book that my wife gave me for For my birthday, The Art of Power, it's a biography of of Thomas Jefferson, and Thomas Jefferson's a brilliant man. But as any Christian will struggle with Thomas Jefferson, while I love his politics, I hate how he approached the Scriptures. You see, Thomas Jefferson was known to make his own Bible. What he did was he cut out all the passages he didn't like. That's the easy way, right? Hey, Jesus, I love you as long as I can mold you and make you to be what I want you to be. And there's a lot of people in our society today, so we love Jesus. And you have to ask the question, well, which Jesus are we talking about? Are we talking about your Jesus, the one you've made and molded into your own image? Or the one that the scriptures contain, not only in the easy passages and the loving passages, but the difficult ones as well. And so we begin to do that, and we begin to say, well, I can listen as long as I get to pick and choose when I want to hear. Can I tell you, if you think that there's wisdom in that, tell your kids it's okay to do that. Tell your kids it's okay for them to pick and choose when they'll listen to you or not, and see how that goes for you. Notice, second, people fall in love with Jesus, and they love to listen to him. They love to hear him talked about. They love to be a part of where he is at. And some of us find ourselves there today. We love being here at church. We love being a part uh, of, of singing songs to Jesus. And it's just something that warms our heart each and every Sunday. We come together, we hear the word taught, and, and uh, we sing songs about him. And we hear people talk about the life change, and it just does us well. I mean, we just walk away feeling so good about where things are at. But I want to remind you that that's not good enough. Jesus was not a fan of the crowds. He was not one who loved to talk to a group of people who had no intention of doing anything about what he had just said. And the book of James tells us Jesus' half-brother reminds us of this truth when he says in James 1, through 25 words that we need to hear. But be doers of the word. And not just hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone's a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in all that he does. You see... You can't approach the Sermon on the Mount and listen and be like, that's just wonderful, that's just great, and walk away and still say you're a fan of the Sermon on the Mount. Just like you can't say, I love having a mirror in my bathroom. I wake up and I look at my uh, wrangled face in the mirror and I say, man, I have some things i got to fix. Oh, well, I'm going to go ahead and head out forgetting that I needed to shave, I needed to fix this thing, and ladies, there's a whole lot more for you to do as you look into the mirror, even though I don't think you need it, but that's between you and the mirror. But, but if you look at that mirror and you leave without ever doing anything about it, you have brought the mirror to a place of total obsolete uh, nature. I mean, there's no, you've made it totally obsolete. And what you do, if you simply just hear the words of Jesus and don't do anything about it, you can talk about it till the cows come home, but you've made the Sermon on the Mount absolutely obsolete. And so Jesus asks in this first question of our examination, who are you listening to? Who is your authority? Where are you going for the answers? And when you hear someone talking, What leads you to action? Because at the end of those three questions, if you will, you will find out whom you're serving. You will find out who you're following. And if it's anybody else but Jesus, go back to the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus makes it very clear that things will not go well with you in that way. Now notice the second question we have this morning. Jesus now says the question after addressing who we may be listening to, he asks the question, what are you laying your foundation upon? In the second question of the exam, Jesus gives us a word problem. You remember the story problems. Remember those back in? Two trains heading from two different towns, traveling at a certain uh, speed, rate of speed, and which train will make it to the town quicker? I never got those. I wanted to know what kind of trains they were, what they were carrying, and all kinds of things, Okay. And, and I never got to actually having the right answer. And, and you can look at my transcripts and understand why I finished with the GPA that I did. All right? I do want to remind you that I did finish third in my class. And many of you will right away say, well, how many students did you have? Ninety-three students. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Third in my class. Okay? Here's the problem. It was third from the bottom. But anyway, okay? Anyway, we get to the story... And we need to understand some things about the story. Jesus shares a story, and he wants to address the question, what are you building in this life? Now, that is a universal question that each of us must ask, no matter what our background is, no matter our age, our occupation. It is a universal question men and women alike must ask of themselves. What are you doing with this life? You have a certain amount of time on this earth, Oh, and we're all hoping for 80 or 90 years, okay? But with that time, that that small little allotment of time, what are you doing with your life? And what are you building upon? And Jesus asks this fundamental question by first of all giving us an illustration. Notice the story he gives. He says, there's a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rains fell and the floods came. And the winds blew and they beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And then there was a foolish man in verse 26 who built his house on the sand. The rains fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell. And great was the fall of it. And so once again, this contrast that we've been hearing about for the last couple of weeks is that this illustration involves two structures. Two structures. Two men go about building for themselves a house. Now we need to stop and observe some things about this story. First of all, what are they building? Both men are building houses. You can't get much more noble than that. It isn't like one is going and buying a a boat or another one going and and pursuing money or taking his money to to pursue all kinds of pleasures and and all kinds of uh, debauchery and sin. No, these two men are building homes, uh, something that each of us have need for. Now, as we look to it, we need to recognize that the reason why they're building it, the motive is incredibly pure. Why do we build homes? Well, hopefully we build homes to be a dwelling place for our family, a place that will keep us warm and and dry, a place where we can sleep and, and eat, a place where we can receive guests. And there's no No point in Jesus' words that paint the picture that the houses that these men were building were any different. Two homes built for good reasons. Now next, notice it doesn't seem to show that either of the builders are any different in their building um, know-how. It wasn't like uh, there was Rich Wood, and for those that don't know Rich, Rich is a master carpenter on one side and Timberdahl on the other side, Okay. Well, of course Tim will build a junky house compared to Rich. Rich has got all the giftings and all the abilities to build a solid and sound house. And Tim, I'll just stick to cooking and preaching, all right? There's nothing about that in the text. So we've got two guys. They know how to build houses. Notice finally that both of them persevere to the end and actually build the house. They build the house that they were intending to build. So it wasn't like one was half built and the other one uh, got fully built. And the reason why one fell and the other one didn't was one was still under construction. No, both of these men seemingly have built the house that they're going to live in. And from the naked eye, if you will, we have two very similar houses built by very similar builders. And yet, we see that there is a storm that comes. And I want you to notice these two structures are hit by one and the same storm. And Jesus says that this storm comes with the same characteristics that hit each of the houses. Notice he says in the text that the rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew, and all of those things beat on the house. On both of them. Now this tells us something about Jesus and what he's trying to articulate in this story. By saying those things in the identical way with both of them, what he's saying is, is these two houses got hit by the same storm at the same time. And so there's not like one was an F5 tornado that hit one and the other one was just a simple rainstorm that hit the other. Both of them found themselves being hit by the same storm. We don't have to look very far. I mean, not too long ago, we we saw the tornadoes that hit down near the Peoria area. And it was amazing. One house would be obliterated and then the one right next to it was standing as if nothing had happened. And that's the picture that Jesus is giving. Two homes in the same neighborhood enduring the same storm, the same winds, the same floods. And what happens One of them is utterly destroyed, and the other one stands untouched. What in the world is Jesus trying to get at? To understand this illustration, we have to then go to an explanation. What's Jesus trying to get at? What Jesus is trying to get to is that no matter whether we are full-fledged followers of Jesus Christ or simply people going about life thinking nothing of Jesus and his words at all, all of us in humanity are building our lives. And so whether you find yourself, again, as a follower of Christ or not, you and your neighbors, you and your friends, you and your family, no matter where your take is on Jesus, all of us are building lives. We've come into marriage, and we've raised a family, and, and we go to work, and, and we try to love on our kids and try to provide for their well-being, and, and, and so we go to work, and we come home, and we, we enjoy the weekends, and we enjoy the good things of life. And the Bible says that all of that's the same amongst believer and unbeliever alike. In fact, Jesus says in Matthew five forty five that God brings the rain to the wicked and the good, And he brings the sun as well. And so there's this, if you will, equality that we're all living life. And what we need to understand what Jesus is saying is, from the naked eye, a person can look at a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ and a total unbeliever. And from the surface, your lives won't look any different. They're not going to look any different until the storms come. Now, what are the storms? Jesus wants us to recognize in this explanation that the storms could be, in fact, real storms, okay, because they can bring all kinds of issues and struggles into our lives. But what makes the houses look different are the storms that come. And most likely the storms that Jesus is talking about are figurative storms. They are storms that that enter into our lives. They are those things that darken our day when everything started out so well on a random Tuesday that those storms are what bring in the storm clouds and they darken our day and, and they change the whole mood of how we are living. It is in those moments will determine what you built your house upon. It is those things, those storms in life, that will show you either to be a full fledged follower of Jesus Christ for all the world to see, or one who has no intent of following Jesus at all. And so what do those storms show? They show the foundation. Notice the storm comes and it destroys one. Why? Because it's built on sand. And it, it the other house is upheld because it's built upon the rock. If you've been a part of our church for some time, you know that we talk a lot about the storms of life. And here's why. Because the Bible makes it abundantly clear, just as man was born, he can expect trials and trouble. The book of Job says man was born to trouble. The Bible makes it clear that we should not ask, why are these bad things happening to us? Because we recognize that the human existence is all about trials. And they're not easy ones. Talking with Dorothy, who we we prayed for her mom, Nancy, she made a statement as, as we were singing this morning. She said, one minute my mom was totally fine, and the next minute she's being rushed to the hospital for emergency surgery. Man, that's whiplash. And that's what troubles do. They come out of nowhere, and they cause our heads to be strained in a way because we were thinking one way, and all of a sudden everything changes as the Rock individual said in a New York minute. And so we need to recognize that troubles are going to come. I'm going to tell you today, even amongst our own body of believers here, one of our own has experienced an absolutely life-changing trial in the last 24 hours. And we need to recognize that maybe it's them today But it's going to be us at some point. Whether you're a believer or not, God says you're going to endure struggles. The storms are going to come. And the storms come in a variety of reasons and ways. They come in in a breaking of a marriage covenant. They come in in a child who says, I want no longer to deal with you mom and dad. I'm going and living on my own. I'm going to go do my own thing. The storms come in a loss of a job. The storms come in a bad medical report. The storms come in a depression that you just absolutely cannot shake. It comes in the loss of a loved one. It comes in a myriad of ways. And how you address those storms, those trials will show you whether you built your house on the rock or on the sand. Now, why would we care about what they built their house on? You see, this is the only difference that Jesus paints in the picture of the two houses. You see, sand was the easy way to build. You didn't have to move anything. You didn't have to drive through anything. It was the easy way to go. You could put put up a good house on a sandy foundation, and it would stand. Notice that it stood until the storm came. And so people build their lives, and, and they build their lives on the sand, and they say, well, everything's fine, everything's good. and and the storm hasn't come yet. And yet, the one who builds upon the rock is a back-breaking process. To think about having to build at that time without any kind of real uh, caterpillar equipment, if you will, it would literally test the heart of a man. There was the easy way sand, there was the hard way building on the rock. And Jesus reminds us that there is an easy way to live life, and there's a hard way. And the easy way is to go and not listen to the words of Jesus, not to make Him your authority, and to live life as you see fit. But the hard way is to put yourself under the teachings of Jesus, to confess yourself as a sinner in need of God's grace, and to pursue obedience. And so then the question we have to get to is, how do we build on that rock? Because that rock is going to be the thing that holds your life together in times of storm. For many of us who are sitting here, you know that my parents' storm took place in 1990. The loss of their firstborn son at 16 years of age to a car accident would shake the very foundations of my parents' life, of our life as a family. And here's what I came to know. My parents were able to endure that struggle, were able to endure that great trial, and praise the name of Jesus, not because they had built on the sand, but because they had built on the foundation of Jesus Christ. And the question this morning is, what are you building your life on? You see, you're going to fail this Sermon on the Mount if you don't answer this question in the right way. Now, there's an explanation to it, and that is that Jesus wants to remind us that this rock is a person. He's a person. I'm not saying that you've got to find some certain rock that you will build upon, certain kind of cement to build your foundation on. No, the foundation is Jesus. Jesus is saying, you need to build your life upon me. Jesus was prophesied to be the rock. In Isaiah 28, 16. Hundreds of years before Jesus would preach this message, This is what the Sovereign Lord says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. And the one who relies on it will never be stricken with panic. It's a person. He's a person, this Jesus Christ is the foundation because he paid the price. He paid the price. In the book of Acts, after his death, burial, and resurrection... The apostle Peter, who was there for the Sermon on the Mount, stands before the religious leaders of his day, and he says, let it be known to all of you and to all people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, who was crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. Jesus is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which has become the chief cornerstone And because of that, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven by which is given for men to be saved. You see, you you can't pursue this world and be on the rock. You have to choose, am I going to pursue the sands of this world or am I going to choose the rock of Jesus Christ? The rock says, I'll bring you peace. Notice that the peace of mind comes in this. When the storm comes, what Jesus is saying, this is the worst of all storms. It doesn't get any worse than that. We talk about that when we talk about the storm of the century. I've never seen it as bad as I saw it at that storm. And your house stood. And even though the winds came and the floods rose and and, and the winds blew at that house, your house stood strong. And what it enables you to do is to say this. If our house endured that storm, it can endure anything. And what Jesus gives is peace that you will endure the hardest storm and you will know your faith can never be shaken again. Can I tell you that amidst my parents' struggle in losing their firstborn son, I am not all that concerned that my parents are going to give up the faith for riches. Or give up the faith for something less than that. If they would have given up the faith, it would have been when they were burying their son. But God proved himself to be faithful. He proved himself to be their peace in times of difficulty. And so now they know our faith. While at times there may be more storms that come, we have come to recognize that Jesus Christ is our peace. And so notice, he's the, pri- he's the, the person who paid the price, who brings peace. When we give our lives and build our lives on the rock of Jesus Christ, we are told that we can have peace with God, peace with ourselves, and peace with one another. And when we have that kind of peace, no matter what the storm clouds around us are doing, we can know that we will be okay. Now notice, he brings great peace in the most perilous of times. And we see that all the stories of of the Old Testament are filled with people who endured difficult times and difficult storms and by faith obeyed and followed God and honored Him. And they found peace amidst the storm. They were able to build their lives because they had built their lives on the foundation of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So that no matter what comes your way, you're ready. So stop building on the easy way, in the sand, and use material that's approved by God himself. And God says you won't be ashamed. But if you choose your life, choose to build on your your life, an absence of God and apart from Jesus Christ, notice what the text says. When that house falls, it is described as being great. It will be utterly destroyed. So then we come to the third and final one. This is a short question. Third question is always the shortest here at Village. What about your life must change? As we close out the sermon series, we've gained nothing. We haven't asked these important, fundamental, and pivotal questions. After 30 weeks, we have heard the words of Jesus. For many of you, you've studied them personally. You've studied them in a small group. And you've heard them preach. And the Sermon on the Mount demands change. I've been gripped by this series because each week it has caused me to examine my attitudes, my actions, my affections, my aspirations. And in each one of those categories, in each of these weeks, I have found that Tim Bidal is found wanting. What that means is I am missing the mark. And so Jesus demands that I change. And what does change involve? It involves, first of all, that we become a reflection of this sermon. And so that we start reflecting the sermon to all those around That the sermon becomes the one and the one who's preached. It becomes our foundation. It becomes our authority. So as every day that we live our lives, we're striving to make the Beatitudes our default attitude in life. That we recognize our actions aren't simply the things that we do in the flesh, but they go to the very core of who we are. Do we see the importance of building disciplines in our life, like giving to the Lord and, and praying and serving and fasting as crucial elements? for us to experience the blessed life in Christ? Do we see the vital importance of the believer to seek first the kingdom of God, knowing that he will bless us when we do? My prayer is that we would be a church that is a Sermon on the Mount kind of church filled with Sermon on the Mount kind of Christians. It is then and only then that you and I will go out into this world and be the salt and light that God has called us to be. But what happens when we fail? When we fail at reflecting this sermon in our lives, we need to repent when we stumble. And so, some of us are learning that unless our righteousness exceeds, the scribes and Pharisees will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Face it, you and I are going to fail at this. We're going to fail all the time. We are going to continually find ourselves in, in points of failure in living up to the commands of Scripture. And when we do, we need to seek God's forgiveness. We need to run to Him and, and, and with sorrow in our hearts, say, I've blown it once again. And here's the thing God is faithful. You see, God knows we're going to blow it. God recognizes we're going to fail. And when we do, we run to him. And what we do is we rely on the Savior. The Sermon on the Mount is an impossible task. And apart from the grace of God, you and I will never accomplish it. And so what do we do? Listen to me, we run to the cross of Jesus. We run to the cross of Jesus and we say, Jesus, apart from you, I can't do this. And Jesus, I'm glad I don't have to do this on my own, that you finished the work on the cross. You took care of it, and now you welcome me into the most glorious of endeavors, and that is to walk with you in full realization that you took care of my sin. You took care of the bondage that I had to deal with. By nailing them to the cross, you allowed my sin no longer to be mine. You took it on yourself. And as a result of that, now I'm free. And what the Son has set free is free indeed. And so stop living in bondage to those things and start basking in the grace that you have a relationship with your Savior who empowers you to be filled by His Spirit to accomplish what He's commanding for you to do today. To live out this great sermon and to do so not as a drudgery, but with great gratitude in your heart to say I have the opportunity to follow my master because he's the one who's the authority. He's the one who has all the answers and that will then lead me to listen to him and put those things into action. I hope and pray this has been a blessing these 30 weeks with you. As we endeavor in a couple weeks to go to the life of Samson, we're going to learn that we as followers of Christ are flawed individuals But thanks be to God that he sent his one and only son Jesus so that we wouldn't have to do it on our own. Let's go to a time of prayer and I'm going to close our time with a a song and with the words on the screen and once that song is done you'll be dismissed. So uh, just make that a time just to meditate on what we've learned and and where we've gone. But let's pray. Father God, I pray that you will uh, take what we have learned in these many weeks and I pray that you would enlighten our hearts. Teach us. Teach us your ways so that we might follow you and pursue your ways. Lord, so that we might experience joy and contentment and peace. And Lord, as we do that, that we would shine as bright stars in a dark world so that they may see even amidst the most difficult of circumstances. When our world seems to fall apart, we stand secure on the rock of Jesus Christ. So Lord, lead us in that, empower us to that so that we may fulfill what you've called us to. In Christ's name, we give all of this, amen.